We've started a new sermon series in the Gospel of John entitled God With Us, and it is born out of the notion that we struggle sometimes to experience the presence of God, to feel that He is near, to know Him. John in his Gospel presents to us God who has become, uh, He's become man uniquely in the history of the world. Many religions play at a God taking on the form of man or appearing to be man like so that they can affect the affairs of men. But Christianity alone claims that no, God actually became human flesh and remains so for our good out of love for us. And so we're going to the Gospel of John to try to experience Jesus in new ways, to experience Him the way that God intends for us to experience Him. And so we're looking today at uh, the latter part of John chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to break it into two different headings, if that's helpful to you. The first thing we're going to consider is understanding who Jesus is. The second thing we're going to, to look at is responding to who Jesus is. So we have to understand who Jesus is before we can appropriately respond to who Jesus is. So toward that end, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Behold, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending 
and descending on the Son of Man. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Sam Smith is the most recent um, British phenom musically. He's uh, a new vocalist, and he has the number one song in the country right now, which is entitled Stay With Me. And he sings, Guess it's true, I'm not good at a one-night stand, but I still need love because I'm just a man. These nights never seem to go to plan. I don't want you to leave. Will you hold my hand? Oh, won't you stay with me because you're all I need. This ain't love, it's clear to me, but darling, stay with me. Smith sings of having a relationship that isn't characterized by love at all. He recognizes that somewhere inside of me has a need for something like that relationship, but the relationship isn't it, but he's afraid to give up what he does have for something else. And in many ways, I think that chorus could be an anthem for American Christianity. Yes, Jesus, stay with me. No, our relationship isn't really what it is supposed to be, but I'm afraid that you would depart, that I would lose something that I need desperately if you were to depart. And so stay with me, even though the relationship is dysfunctional. It's less than it's intended to be. One of the reasons that our relationship with Jesus is so often dysfunctional and not what it should be is that we have many different visions culturally of who Jesus is. We gravitate to those images based on who we are and what we're looking for in him. There's family Jesus, right? Family Jesus is the Jesus who wants you to to be all around the dinner table together having brilliant conversation, raising children who are smarter than average and who play sports better than average. And if they go on and don't engage in any serious sin and go on to have great-grandchildren and you celebrate that as you get older, family Jesus has shown up for you and you are content. But there's also strong Jesus, right? Powerful Jesus who crushes anything that is in your path. It's actually tempted to show you images this morning of various Jesuses in culture. I decided ultimately that that would be inappropriate. But there was one image that was striking, sad, and comical at the same time. It was Jesus hanging on the cross. But you have to imagine this Jesus as uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. And uh, so this very strong-armed Jesus was hanging on the cross. And as he's hanging on the cross, he's actually breaking the cross apart. Like he's, he's shattering it so that he can come off it. I think, doesn't that kind of defeat the idea of what's happening at the cross? You know, we love that notion of a Jesus who's powerful and strong and defeats all things. It helps us not to necessarily go to that place where we might identify with a Jesus who's suffering and laying down his life on behalf of others. There's Pharisee Jesus. Pharisee Jesus is the Jesus who brings a new code. And as long as I adhere to that new code and seek to do my best in that regard, then Jesus loves me more than he loves you. There's warm, fuzzy Jesus. Uh, my sin isn't such a big deal. Jesus loves me. It's, he forgives it all. We're going to be good when we meet face to face, regardless of what I do. There's American Jesus, right? The United States is God's country, and Jesus has borne us as a people. And as we identify with capitalism and and power and control, we identify with the real Jesus. You know, there, there's elements of truth to all of these Jesuses, some more, some less. 
Right? But that's why we have those kinds of pictures. They're, they're born out of taking a piece of Jesus and his ministry and then uh, blowing it out of proportion, gravitating to that one image of Jesus and uh, negating other images of Jesus. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus is very complex. He's not simple. And I think it's one of the great, one of the enemy's great devices that he would, he would fool us into making Jesus too simple. Too easy to, yeah, I've got Jesus figured out. And that's never going to happen. Jesus is ridiculously complex. And it's only when we are confronted continuously by the complexity of images that are offered to us in the Gospels that we are challenged in our thinking. Challenged to view Jesus in the right way. And this is what John does in the opening of his Gospel. He is intent that his readers would understand who Jesus is. From John's perspective, you can't really move forward until you understand who he is. That's why he opens in chapter 1 with the most brilliant theological statement of the person of Jesus of all of the Gospels. And it's why he continues to unpack it with John the Baptist's disclosure here in the, this first part of our passage today. John the Baptist is the one who's being recorded. John's reflecting back on what occurred as John the Baptist came on the scene and was the one to pave the way for Jesus. And I don't want you to be like me. I was so old when I figured out that John, the author of the gospel, was not John the Baptist. So if you're in that place, they're not the same person. And we'll refer to John the Baptist as John the Baptist and John as the author of the gospel. You probably already knew that. But in case you didn't, be aware. So look with me at verse 29. Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist He first sees Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist first designates Jesus as the Lamb of God. What does that mean? Why is that the phrase that he goes to to describe who Jesus is? Well, there's actually a number of options because Lamb of God is an image that could point to a number of different things. So we have to consider some of those and then understand what John the Baptist is communicating. In some Jewish apocalyptic literature, there's an image of a conquering lamb. The lamb is actually the one who comes and defeats sin and evil. And you see this occurring in Revelation. In Revelation 7, the the lamb is the one uh, who leads the peoples. And in 17.14, the lamb is the one who crushes the evil powers of the earth. So this actually fits quite well with the preaching of John the Baptist who speaks a great deal about Jesus coming on the scene, the one who is to come, doing business with uh, God's people and with sin in the world, uh, his expectation of him. So, for example, in Luke 3, 7, John the Baptist warns that the axe was already laid to the root of the tree. In 3, 9, John the Baptist warned that God was ready to cut down and throw into the fire any tree that did not bear good fruit. In the, in the words of John the Baptist, Jesus comes with his winnowing fork. There's this, uh, in John the Baptist's mind, the one who is coming, the one he points to, is one who comes in judgment. He comes, in a sense, to clean house. And so, this image of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, drawn from these places where the Lamb is actually a pretty uh, significant uh, figure of judgment and crushing evil, he draws on. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who in the world would choose a lamb as that image? I don't know. It's not very ferocious. And, you know, there's, 
I kid you not, there's a school in the hill country of Texas who chose as their mascot a unicorn. So you drive by and on the school there is a unicorn. And you think, who in their right mind would choose a unicorn? You know, oh, here comes the unicorns, that's pretty scary. Here comes the lamb, not very scary. But in the literature that we see from this time period, it did communicate strength and power. Now think too, though, the complexity of, um, you see, the, the lamb imagery, I want to recognize that there's a degree of weakness in it because it's also going to draw on stories of weakness in the Old Testament. And so the second way you could think about it interpretively is to understand the lamb as the suffering servant or the servant of Yahweh. In the book of Isaiah, there are four songs that uh, refer to a mysterious figure who will suffer on behalf of God's people. Uh, there's some debate whether that person is one person or a corporate entity. But as you look um, at what the Lamb of God, is, who it's going to be, and how John is going to unpack it unquestionably, Jesus is one who comes to suffer on behalf of his people to set things right. And so you have this imagery of the suffering servant that is at play as well. Now, the, the thing that's a little bit interesting to wrestle with as you think about John 1 is really nowhere does John the Baptist let you in on the notion that he thinks that the one he's pointing to is coming to suffer or to die. His language is much more about the one who's coming is coming to be victorious and to crush the oppressors. And so you have here... John the Baptist may be speaking prophetically in ways that he doesn't even fully understand. And what John the Gospel author is going to do is going to take these images and run through the rest of the Gospel to fill out that Jesus is indeed suffering servant, among other things. It's interesting in the history of the church, the church fathers in the East tended to prefer this interpretation. The Lamb of God, Jesus, as the suffering servant. But the church fathers in the West, in our tradition, tended to prefer the notion that the Lamb of God referred to Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb that would be sacrificed at Passover. If you remember the story of the Exodus, when you get to the end of the ten plagues, the angel of death is descending to take the firstborn of all Egyptians. God commands the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb, to take its blood and put it on the doorposts to spare their firstborn sons. And that is the Passover lamb, which becomes part of Israelite tradition. And by the time we get to Jesus, it's actually something that's going on in the temple. It's overseen by the priesthood. And more of a sacrificial notion has been attached to it. And so this third option for the lamb of God we have is um, Jesus is the Passover lamb. And John is going to take this and he's going to run as far as he can with it. We're going to see at the end of his gospel that John wants to drive home to you very hard that Jesus is the lamb who would be slain in your stead to avert God's wrath. That it would pass over you because it has fallen on Jesus. So pretty amazing, right? You think of this one phrase, lamb of God, and in it is all this meaning, all this history for the people of God. That lamb of God refers to a powerful lamb that crushes evil and sin. The Lamb of God refers to a suffering servant who stands in the stead for his people. And Lamb of God stands for the Passover Lamb, the Lamb that sacrificed to avert God's wrath so that it wouldn't fall on his people. And all this is informing who Jesus is. It's a remarkable image that communicates all of these things. And so again, 
as, G, as John begins to recount John the Baptist, but really with the intent of telling you who Jesus is, right? We're so, we're so prone to simplify Jesus, and here we get anything but simple. We get a very profound statement of who Jesus is that, that should challenge us to think of, oh, do I know Jesus as the, the one who judges sin and death, who takes it very seriously, or who judges it, yeah. Or do I think of Jesus as the suffering servant? Do I identify with him that way? That I stand in behalf of others? Do I think of Jesus as the Passover lamb? I play a role in averting God's wrath simply, for example, by praying for others. Jesus is anything but simple. And Jesus goes on, uh, I'm sorry, John goes on in verse 33 to continue to unpack Jesus for us. Uh, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus not only as the Lamb of God, but also as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John says, I'm one who baptizes with water. This guy is one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Why is it so important to John to communicate that? One of the things theologians wrestle with is, why did Jesus get baptized at all? which John is only alluding to here. He doesn't really describe the scene. Right? But if, if John's Baptist was one, John the Baptist's baptism was one for repentance and Jesus doesn't have sin, then why should Jesus be baptized by John the Baptist, not the author of the gospel? Why, why does he need that? And so there's some debate, but what I think is going on is, is Jesus is identifying with his people. He says, yes, as the servant of Yahweh who stands on behalf of my people, I identify with them in their condition, but that very baptism, the water of washing, of repentance, is associated in the Old Testament with the outpouring of the Spirit. It is the cleansing that occurs, God cleanses His people, that they might be prepared to be filled up by His Spirit. Here's Jesus saying, yes, I'm, I'm undergoing this, this rite, this act of baptism, identifying with my people, but you don't realize what's happening. There's a cleansing that's coming, and it will not be with water. It will be with my blood. And it will be such a cleansing that, yes, the Spirit of God can finally be poured out and fill up His people in a way that the Old Testament people of God have only dreamed of. So John tells us that Jesus is the one who would finally bring the Spirit to the people of God. Again, it won't happen until the end. But this is why Jesus is here. He makes the temple obsolete. He becomes the one that restores the people, but also the place at which God and the people can connect again permanently with the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus is Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. As John recounts John the Baptist's vision, John says to you, you have to understand who Jesus is. And it was a problem in his day. Already the church was confronting uh, bad interpretations of who Jesus was. And so he's fighting with those. But for us today as well, in a, in a generation, in a culture that is filled with bad interpretations of Jesus, John says, you better understand who Jesus is. The Lamb of God and what that means and the one who baptizes in the Spirit and what that means. And only when you rightly understand who Jesus is can you begin to rightly wrestle with the question, what does it mean to follow him? If I ask you, what does it mean to follow Jesus? 
What would you say as you think about it? What's involved in actually being his disciple? How does one respond appropriately, our second point, to who Jesus is? Beginning in verse 35, John transitions and describes how Jesus meets his first followers. What he's doing is not only telling this story of how Jesus comes on the scene and people begin to follow him, but he's saying, look, when, when people rightly recognized who Jesus was, they left everything and pursued him with wholehearted devotion. If you understand Jesus correctly, that is the only appropriate response to who he is. And so uh, Jesus comes first to Andrew, Andrew and an unnamed disciple, who may be John himself. And they, hearing John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, decide simply to follow Jesus. Which, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but John the Baptist is such a hard role. Right? He preaches of the one to come. He has this following. He has to wear animal hair and eat locusts and honey. And then as soon as Jesus shows up, his people just walk off and follow after Jesus. And that's his whole role. But it reminds us that that's our role as well. There is nothing else that we can do of any significance except to give to one another Jesus. As John the Baptist gives to the world, points the way to the Messiah. So, uh, Andrew and the unnamed disciple follow Jesus. Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon and says, Listen, uh, we have found uh, the Messiah. Simon comes. Jesus renames him. Then Jesus says to Philip, follow me. And uh, he does. He comes after Jesus. And he goes and gets Nathaniel and says, Come, uh, we found the, the one. Excuse me, in verse 45, he says, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel, though reluctant to believe, Jesus does some disclosures to him. And then Nathan, Nathaniel testifies, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. What does John want us to understand in these little snippets of the first disciples of Christ? First, notice how each encounter is accompanied with a proper understanding of who Jesus is. Andrew names Jesus Messiah. Philip says that Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures. Nathaniel called Jesus Son of God and King of Israel. So again, John is reiterating to come to know Jesus begins by understanding correctly who he is. These titles are a sign. Secondly, John emphasizing that recognizing Jesus, if you understand who he is, then part of the proper response is to go and to share that with others. Andrew goes to Simon. Philip goes to Nathaniel. And John seems to be suggesting Listen, if you really understand who Jesus is, then how could you not go and invite other people to come and see? Which challenges us with the other question, if we're not inviting people to come and see, do we really understand who Jesus is? Maybe our Jesus being so simplified, so neutered, it's not really worth saying to people, come and see. We're wrestling throughout the Gospel of John. What does it mean to experience and enjoy the presence of God? Maybe we aren't really experiencing the presence of God because our understanding is totally inappropriate and we're not really being challenged by who Jesus is. 
The third thing I want you to note in responding to Jesus is that John describes decisive responses to Jesus. Philip and the unnamed disciple followed Jesus immediately. Philip and Nathaniel did the same. I'm saying when you understand the identity of Jesus correctly, then what can you do but give up what is dear to you in this world and follow him? I think in American Christianity today, there is a great paralysis in real discipleship. And really saying of the things that we value and hold dear, they come a distant second to experiencing and to knowing Jesus. I would say of myself, I want to be a serious disciple of Jesus. Many of you would say the same thing, but what really is involved in saying that? If you say, I want to be a serious disciple of Jesus, what does that mean for you? What do you actually have to do to be a serious disciple of Jesus? I was challenged by uh, one of the chapters in Malcolm Gladwell's book called uh, Outliers, which the whole book is intended to undermine some of the assumptions that we make about what makes someone great. And uh, in this chapter, he talks about how psychologists have debated for a long time whether someone great, truly great in their field, has to have, is just great because of innate talent. If that is the one key ingredient. So if you consider someone like Bill Gates, leaves Harvard in his, his freshman year, starts a little company called Microsoft, and what made him so great? What makes him the most profitable man in the world? Is it a blend of different factors, or ultimately is it boiled down to, this is an exceptionally gifted man, period and everything else is secondary. And so since the early 90s, there have been uh, lots of studies to try to examine this notion and figure out what makes a great person great in any field. Music, literature, math, science, arts, so on and so forth, chess. Right? What is it that does this? And so in one of the first studies that was performed at Berlin's Elite Academy of Music in the early 1990s, uh, grouped all the students into three different groups. Group number one was those who were absolutely exceptional and who were uh, expected to be professional musicians. Group number two were those who were simply termed good. They were somewhere in the middle. And group three were those musicians who uh, there was no way that anyone conceived of them being professional, and most of them were intending to go and teach music at a lower level after they graduated. And so as they examined these three groups, they started to go all the way back to the beginning of their music career to evaluate what made them who they are. And in the beginning, everything was the same. Yeah, they all showed innate ability. They were all gifted musically in a certain way. And they all started about the age of five. And at the beginning, they all practiced the same, about three hours per week. And so it went on for five and six and seven And then suddenly at age eight, the study found that there started to be a substantial difference. In that the group in the elite category began to practice more hours than the other two groups. And this would continue on and on as uh, the years went by. The students who'd end up uh, the best in their class, began to practice more than everyone else. Six hours a week by age nine, eight hours a week by age 12, 16 hours a week by age 14, and up and up. Until by the age of 20, they were practicing 
that is purposefully and single-mindedly playing their instruments with the intent to get better well over 30 hours a week. By contrast, the merely good students had totaled 8,000 hours, and the future music teachers had totaled just over 4,000 hours. So they said, well, is this really, are there anomalies to this? In other words, is there a student who has gone through and hasn't put in the time, but is still at the top of the elite group? And there wasn't. They said, well, is there an anomaly on the other side? Is there a person who has put in more than 10,000 hours of practice, but finds themselves only in the good or only in the bottom category? And there wasn't an anomaly there either. And confirmed over and over again, from the early 1990s to now, is that what distinguishes someone who is truly great in their field is the number of hours they have invested in practicing. And social scientists have actually attached a number that, almost without exception, any great person in any great field has invested 10,000 hours of practice in achieving that position. And say that's what makes the difference between someone who is really great at something and someone who's not is simply hard work. It's the discipline to do this. And so he ends the chapter, just as a quick example, by coming back to Bill Gates. He said, was he some kind of crazy anomaly? He says, no. You actually look at Bill Gates. uh, He's an anomaly in what he had access to. He happened to transfer from a public school to a relatively elite private school in Seattle as he was growing up. And at that private school, some of the board members or a parent, I don't remember who, was uh, already in computers. And so provided the school with an exceptional uh, access to computing programs. And so Gates spent most of his middle school and high school years programming. He was the uber geek. He gave up sports and music and everything else. He snuck out of his house at night to sneak into the computer lab at the University of Washington to program through the night, snuck back home, and his parents always wondered why they had such a hard time waking him up in the morning. By the time Gates left Harvard, he had exceptionally more than 10,000 hours of programming under his belt. He was already an expert. His discipline had made him who he was. All right, now what's the point of all this? If you hear me saying that you just need to put in a lot more hours and work harder at being a disciple of Jesus and then everything will be great, then you're mishearing me. John unequivocally will say that you only come to Jesus because Jesus has reached out and grabbed a hold of you and brought you near. Jesus is the one who grows you up. But at the same time, there is a responsibility of discipleship. There is a, uh, a responsibility of what we choose to do in that relationship that either builds a relationship with Jesus or lets it evaporate. When we think about what makes someone great, if I say I want to be a great disciple of Jesus and then I go and I spend more time watching TV or reading books or playing at a hobby than I do in actually investing in discipleship, I'm full of it. And so are you. Do you truly want to know Jesus and His presence? What are you investing in that? What are the questions that you have to begin to ask? You know, I found I've always tended to be relatively faithful in my Bible reading, but I would rush through it and get it done and be like, all right, good for me. 
wasn't doing anything. And so I found I've got to invest more time, but I don't, I don't know how to do it. And so I started writing, started journaling, and it makes me sit there. It makes me wrestle with the text and think it through. And suddenly I find myself now investing more time in discipleship. Or going through a week and asking, hmm, have I intentionally identified with the suffering servant by, ser- by suffering on someone's behalf? Or have I identified with the Passover lamb by helping to avert God's wrath? Loving someone. Have I identified with the response that John holds out to us by going to someone and saying, listen, I know you think Jesus is crazy, but come and see. Really come and see. Now we're starting to talk about the investment of time and energy that would be necessary to actually be a disciple of Jesus. And for many of us who say, I don't know the presence of Jesus, he seems very distant, we must also at the same time acknowledge that we invest ever so little. Why would our expectation be almost like it's magic? Oh, I believe in Jesus. Suddenly you're a disciple. It doesn't work that way, nor is it intended to work that way. At the end of our passage, Jesus makes an allusion to a vision that Jacob had where the heavens are open and there's a stairway and the angels are ascending and descending. And it's a, a point of connection between heaven and earth. And in Jesus, that will be fulfilled, that where in the Old Testament the temple was the place where heaven and earth met, Jesus will become the place where heaven and earth meets. But in the outpouring of the Spirit, it is the church that becomes the place, His very body, where heaven and earth meet. Do we know Him in such a way that we really reveal to the world that this is the place where heaven and earth meet? And we are the people who know Jesus as the Lamb of God. To know Him in this way, to be ministered to by Him in this way, is to know the abundant life that John will hold out for us. May we aspire to it together. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are Lamb of God. We praise You that You are King. We thank You that You are the One who dispenses the Spirit. And in Your own sacrifice, You have been so gracious to us. And You have rescued us from such darkness. Let us not underestimate the darkness that we have been rescued from. Nor let us think more highly of our discipleship than we ought. But instead, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would continue to ravish our hearts. And help us to repent and to know you in every way and to to run the race as Paul exhorts us in such a way that we would not be disappointed at the finish, but truly to press into you. Help us to understand you for who you are. For in that understanding, how could we do anything but? Help us to come and see and help us to bring others to come and see. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.